Okay, so James 5, we're going to start in verse 7, read through verse 11, this one paragraph. Um, just to remind you, because we haven't been in James for a few weeks, uh, James um, uh, wrote this book to really believers that had been scattered because of persecution during the first century. The uh, persecution of Christians in the first century initially came from uh, the, 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 the Jewish leaders, uh, in primarily the scribes and the Pharisees. You go through the book of Acts, and that's where the conflict especially comes from. And then later, the uh, persecution began to come from the Romans and the Greeks. And so, uh, in the first century, Christianity began in Jerusalem. And as you go through the book of Acts, it begins in Jerusalem, and then it goes outside of Judea, the area where Jerusalem is, to uh, Samaria and Galilee, which is in the center and then the northern part of Israel. And the Christians um, just start moving outside of the area of Judea. And they're moving because they're being chased out. Persecution is what scattered the believers in the early church. One of the things that was accomplished at Christ's coming, which I kind of wanted to talk about during the Christmas season, but didn't really have time. One of the things that took place with the coming of Christ to the earth and his death, his burial, and his resurrection is that it opened up the Gentiles to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you study the Old Testament and the history of the Old Testament, the truth about God and putting your faith in God was the God of Israel. And uh, the truth about the true God didn't really go very far beyond the boundaries of ancient Israel. Uh, there, there's a few cases like Jonah is sent to Nineveh and uh, the Ninevites repent and they turn to the Lord and they embrace the God of Israel. That's how the... That's how uh, the Old Testament gospel was spread, but for the most part, it was kept uh, pretty closely uh, embraced by the Jewish people alone. When Jesus came to earth, began his ministry, chose 12 apostles to, uh, uh, and 70 others, and he sent them out, he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to the Gentiles. Take this gospel to the people of Israel. And that's what we see happening in the gospels until John chapter 12, where some Greeks come seeking Jesus. And at that point, uh, John 12 is the Last Supper, and uh, it, it's followed up by the crucifixion, the death and resurrection of Christ. And the last thing that Jesus said, one of the last things he said to his disciples, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And so we are the recipients of that change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, where now the gospel is not simply um, limited to the confines of the nation of Israel. Now the gospel has been spread throughout all of the earth. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. For the most part, people who lived on earth during the period of the Old Testament died without faith. Very few really came to know what the truth was. Jesus says to us and to his followers, I want you to go and I want you to take this message of the gospel everywhere. And uh, so now 
uh, really there are very few places on planet Earth where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not penetrated. And we who are Gentiles, again, have been graced to be living in this period of time when we are the objects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just, I just, I just thought that was such an important part of what changed when Christ came to earth. James writes to uh, primarily what appears to be Jewish believers, but uh, it really applies to all believers, and these are believers that are suffering for their faith. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is especially applicable for those who are suffering deeply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So let's read the passage. I want to start in 5.6, which will begin the context here. He says, uh, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Uh, the first five verses, James is issuing a judgment against the rich who have been oppressing the poor and who have been um, especially condemning those who are believers. So those first five verses is speaking about the rich and the judgment that's going to come upon them for their wickedness. And as a conclusion of that, verse 6 says, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Then verse 7 begins, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So having read, let's say, 7 through 11, what's the primary theme? Patience. It's repeated, I don't know, three or four times, and a related word, endurance. Patience and endurance. And this is a command in verse 7. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Patience and endurance. James calls for believers who are suffering for their faith and their convictions to be patient. And then he illustrates this patience with three illustrations. I'll just go over those now. The first is in verse 7 where he talks about a farmer. And he says, A farmer, in order to harvest the best crop, has to wait for the seasons of rain. And in Israel, there were two rainy seasons related to the harvest. The early rains occurred when the seed was first planted. And the latter rains uh, occurred when the seed was coming into its blossoming period. And without those two rainy seasons, the uh, crops were not very good. And so James says the farmer, if he wants to get the good fruit at the end of the harvest, 
has to be patient. He has to be patient for the seasons to occur. So that's his first illustration. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it. And then the second example is in verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They're an example. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel spoke the truth of God to Israel, and for the most part, they were not very well received. Uh, some of them were imprisoned. Some of them were killed. Um, Jeremiah is uh, referred to as the weeping prophet, and one of the reasons is because he went through so many different uh, uh, imprisonments and arrests and beatings um, that his whole book is basically um, uh, just a display of all the suffering that he went through simply because he spoke in the name of the Lord. Turn to Matthew 5, verse 10. I'll just uh, call to your attention a couple of verses. But notice, in the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, uh, in verse 11, James says, We count them blessed who endured. They spoke in the name of the Lord, they suffered for it, they endured it, and so James says, they're blessed. And it takes us back to some words that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. And he uses this same example of the prophets that James uses. So let's look at that real quickly. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now these verses here that Jesus speaks, they apply to us. But you notice the key, blessed are those who have been persecuted. Um, have you ever been persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ? Can you think of a time that you could say, oh, that was persecution? Or have you ever suffered because of your convictions as a believer? And uh, so... Uh, what kind of suffering did you experience? So let's just talk a little bit about that. Anybody? Tim? 1992, I went to jail in Israel for singing in Hebrew songs about Yeshua, about Jesus on the bus. He didn't like it. Okay, so let me ask you something just to clarify. Was it your singing or was it the message that you were singing? Good call. It's what the words were about, which was the King of Kings, the Lord That's right. It's the message. It's always the message, right? Who else? 
Okay. Yes, Patty? Rejection. Rejection. Because? And they don't want to hear it, okay? Elise? Ridicule. Ridicule. Making fun of you, mocking, scorning, trying to make you feel ashamed, all of those things. Yeah, Kim? I was told I was heartless. Heartless? You? Emo, uh, grief. Okay, good. Remember what uh, Paul says about uh, those who fall asleep in Christ. Uh, he says those that are left behind. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. And that's the difference. There's still grief, but there's the hope. And uh, people don't understand that. Okay? Okay, now, so far, I haven't heard of anyone being beaten um, run out of town, um, obviously killed, otherwise you wouldn't be here to say it. <laughs> but these are examples of the kind of hostility that is a part of our society. Let me give you a brief description of when James talks about being impatient, being patient or to endure. I would describe patience or endurance as to stay strong amidst resistance and opposition while awaiting an expected future good. And I take that from this verse in Hebrews 12 where it talks about Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And so what James is going to focus on this morning is that there is a future good that awaits us, and we're called to be patient when we're undergoing trials and tribulations and suffering. What James talks about in James 5, if you'd like to go back there, is the application of this passage is more obvious to Christians outside of America because believers in other countries experience the kinds of persecution that were experienced by first century Christians. It's estimated there are about 215 million Christians in the world today who experience high or very high uh, levels of persecution. The most dangerous country in the world to be a Christian, what would you say, what would you guess? North Korea been that way for, you know, I don't know, they, they have a way of rating this, but North Korea has been for the last 14 or 15 years the most dangerous place for Christians to be. Most of the persecution in the world today against Christians is driven by um, Islamic, they call them extremists, but uh, it's coming from religious zealots who are a part of Islam. Out of the 50 countries on the list of the most dangerous countries for Christians, 35 of them are from Islamic-dominated countries. The persecution of Christians worldwide is rising. The most violent country, Pakistan. 
which is interesting because uh, we actually support some missionaries in Pakistan. Um, the killing of Christians in Nigeria. Uh, Nigeria uh, has increased 60%, and the killing of Christians is now more geographically dispersed than it used to be. What kind of persecution are we talking about? Death, imprisonment, torture, having your home or your church destroyed, your property confiscated, being driven out of your country. Um, those are just some of the kinds of things that when we talk about persecution in James, people outside of the United States and maybe Europe, these are the kinds of uh, experiences that they deal with. Officially, um, what, we, what do you know about persecution and church growth? What's the point of persecution? Why do people persecute Christians? What are your thoughts on that? Why would someone ridicule you, Elise, for being a Christian? Views? Okay, okay. So your refusal or your unwillingness to embrace other people's views against your own convictions um, cr creates that kind of hostility. Okay. It's a little disconcerting, not really knowing how to read everything here, because um, it almost appears like, uh, no, we don't have any persecution here. And if we don't have any, that's not a good sign. Let me talk about China. China is officially an atheistic nation, and it's a place where the government has uh, basically closed down many churches. China has allowed what are called official churches that are sanctioned by the Chinese government where Christians can go to worship, but the messages are all... Um, um, they, they watch what you're saying and they only allow you to say certain things and they don't allow you to say other things. But they estimate in China that there will be more Christians in China than any other country in the world in the next 10 years. There are an estimated 100 million Protestant Christians in China, most of them from underground churches. And why are they underground? Persecution. So persecution, you know, the intent of it is to kind of drive out Christianity, but in reality what it does is it just drives it underground where it continues to flourish and grow. The growth of Christianity has fallen in Western countries like Europe and the United States, but on the African continent and in Asia, it's exploding. In Africa, in 1900, there were 8.7 adherents to Christianity. Now there are 390 million. It's expected in the next five years there will be 600 million Christians in Africa. So while the 
uh, Christian, these are just statistics, the Christian population is uh, dropping in Western countries, it's exploding in other parts of the world. And the places where it's growing the most are those places where the persecution is the most intense. Jesus said about the church, he says this to Peter, you're a Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Mormon church, um, a part of their history and teaching says they're called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And why are they referred to as Latter-day Saints? Because they believe that after the last of the apostles died, the church ceased to exist. And for 2,000 years, there was no Christian church, no true church on the earth until it was restored by Joseph Smith in uh, the uh, late 1800s, or the early 1800s. And, uh, but that doesn't, historically, that is not the case. The church has never ceased to exist. It has always been not only existent, but growing. Just as Jesus said. In our, uh, so, um, in our country, because we have to, you know, we have to relate this to us. Where it says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. James 5.8, you too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. How are, in the United States, and maybe Canada, what are some of the things that you have read about or seen that show a, a well, we'll use the word persecution, of those who are Christians. Is there any? No prayer in school. That would be one. Alicia? Yes, on your media, Christianity is usually mock. Christians are looked at as being bigoted or foolish. That's, a, that's, that's an obvious one. Yeah, trying to, uh, this, now this is a real dilemma for those who want to remove all vestiges of Christianity from our history and from our government. Now, I've, I've never been to Washington, D.C., but my understanding is a vast majority of the buildings and monuments have some Christian elements to them. And, and there is a, a move to want to efface or erase those things uh, from those monuments, which would be like, I don't know how you even do that. So what else? Oh. What yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, some of the things that have gone on in the past is that uh, 
Christians are often mocked or vilified by professors on college campuses. That's a big thing. Christian groups are often unwelcome in schools, especially on college campuses. Chick-fil-A was going to open one of their first restaurants in England, and uh, they kept it open, I think, for a week and then closed it down because of the, uh, um, the outrage and the protests against it. Now, who doesn't like chicken? So what's the deal? Why is Chick-fil-A, which is closed on Sundays, by the way, why is that, why is that an issue for people? It's owned by uh, the person that started it, um, is a strong advocate of biblical Christianity and, uh, and not a supporter of the, um, the, the gay, lesbian, transgender, that, that whole community. It's because of his own personal beliefs that, you know, makes it a target, so to speak. Um, some neighborhoods have enacted zoning laws strictly for the purpose to keep home Bible studies out of neighborhoods. Bakers have been fined for refusing to bake wedding cakes. Um, judges um, admonished for refusing to perform um, gay weddings. Um, pastors preaching messages from the Bible on forms of immorality are accused of hate speech. Canada has some hate speech laws that uh, um, are not to that point yet, but um, in, it very well could become that. Um, so persecution of Christians, um, should we be even surprised by it? Should we? No, why not? Well, let's turn. Let's see what the Bible says. First Peter 5.8. Let's just start there. Okay. Yeah, Joe? Yeah, the, the Christian films that are coming out now, I mean, honestly, this is just my own personal opinion. Most Christian films in the past have been kind of cheesy. That's just how I feel about them. But the, the, the more recent ones have been well done and the powerful message and uh, um, media can be used for good or evil. Uh, Frida? Yes, censorship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Facebook, uh, Google, all of those are, you know, kind of struggling with what do we allow, what don't we allow, you know, because they, they don't, anyway. But that, that's a big thing, too. Okay, 1 Peter 5.8. Here we go. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
we have in verse 8 an adversary. He's the devil, and he's looking for people to devour. And uh, the people that he's looking to devour are those who are believers in Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 9 it says, resist him, firm in your faith. And so we're not surprised. It's, it's, it's been the history of uh, God and his message and his word that it's being resisted by the world. It, it's, not a, it's not a surprise. In 2 Timothy 3, it talks about what things are going to be like in the last days. And so we don't know when the last days are. When Paul's writing, it's like the first century, and he's calling them the last days. So it wasn't the last days for him, because it's, and it may not be for us, but it sure seems like it. 2 Timothy 3.1, realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I want you to notice what's in that list that typically when, when we talk about the last days, a lot of times we characterize them by the sexual sins, the immoral sins. But notice none of those are in here. These things that characterize the last days are kind of the normal things that we see. Lovers of self. What do you call a lover of self? Selfish. <laughs> uh, lovers of money. Greedy. Um, verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, haters of good. But it's just really interesting that, you know, this description of mankind is not unique to our day, but this is what characterizes the last days, which may indicate that it's, you know, it will be even worse. So, we shouldn't be surprised at what we're seeing in the, in the world today. Uh, that is just a part of what God said would happen. 2 Timothy 4 says in, that there will come a time when men won't want to hear the truth. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and they'll turn aside to myths. Jesus said this, John 3.20, Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. Now, think about that for a minute. Those who do evil hate the light, and they do not come to the light. Why? Because the light shines in the darkness and exposes the deeds. People who are unwilling to come to the light one reason is the light exposes them. And the way they protect themselves from that 
is by putting out the light or trying to shield themselves from it. The light, the light is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when people hear it, it exposes. People don't want to hear it. And, you know, for one reason, they don't believe it. So that's, you know, that's one reason. But one of the reasons Jesus was persecuted is because his words and his life exposed the darkness. John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So this persecution that we're talking about, James is saying, be patient, be patient, be patient while you're undergoing suffering. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It'll come in various forms. All right? So let's, let's make sure we understand it's going on right here. And we've all, I'm sure, been uh, the objects of it at various times in our lives. Persecution. Going back to James 5, how should we respond when we're suffering and being persecuted? How should we respond according to James? What should we do? What does James say? What does James say two times, if not three? Be patient, endure. That's right. What shouldn't we do? I just thought of, here's, we shouldn't retaliate. We shouldn't fight evil with evil. Jesus said when he was being arrested, he was standing before Pilate, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Revenge, retaliation, that's one potential response, but it's not one that the Lord would advocate, would that's not what we are to do. Those who kill Christians, Christians should not rise up and return the favor. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What else can be a response to suffering and persecution? Well, we can alleviate persecution by abandoning our faith. If it's so hard to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. If I'm going to have to suffer because of my identification with Christ, I won't identify with Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. It's that endurance word again. Endurance. Some... 
It's like the parable of the sower, where the seed is sown on different hearts. And one of the hearts is the seed is sown, and it says, and they believe for a while. But then in time of trial or tribulation, they give up, and they no longer believe. Some Christians, some people, some believers, some individuals who may or may not be believers, but took the step. I think this is what Hebrews is about. Read the book of Hebrews. What's the message of Hebrews? Hold fast. Don't give up. The evidence of true, genuine faith in a person's heart is endurance. So that's one response that sometimes people take. They simply just give up their faith. Another response is we can compromise the truth of the gospel in order to be accepted by the world. And this is what some churches are choosing to do. They fear to speak of certain things in God's word because they're not readily accepted by people in the culture. And they, and they know that in many cases, if they talk about certain issues or certain truths in the Bible, that people will stop coming to listen to them. And so there is a pull to kind of compromise what the Bible says about certain beliefs some churches have chosen to teach about world peace and social justice and tolerance for all beliefs. And the churches that do that don't face a lot of persecution. Isn't that interesting? And why is that? Because that doesn't expose anything. Be patient. This is what James calls us to do. This does not mean we no longer try to change laws or behaviors or that we fail to defend our faith. But it does mean that we endure the hardship that comes suffering for the name of Christ. The thing about patience is that patience is a time word. When we talk about patience, we're talking about being able to sustain strength over a period of time. Um, uh, so it, it does have to do with time. Back uh, in the book of James, how long are we to be patient? The answer is in verse 7 and 8. Until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. We, that's when our need to be patient ends. Because something happens when the Lord returns that eliminates the need for patience. Now let me give, just give you, uh, uh, just I, over the, we're almost done. Here's a brief sequence of my future. All right? I'm going to die. My spirit's going to go to be with the Lord immediately at that point. My spirit will be in the presence of Christ in heaven until 
the Lord returns. When the Lord returns, all the saints who have died in Christ will return with him. The Lord will set up a kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Christ on the earth itself, a tangible kingdom. And he will rule over the earth for a millennium, a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, the earthly kingdom will become the eternal kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. So when you die in Christ, you're going to go to heaven, but you're not going to stay there. You're going to return when Christ comes back. And then eventually we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth. That is our future. We're not there yet. Okay? We're, we're not, I mean, we're still here. But we still got, I guess what I'm trying to say is, when I grew up, I just thought when you died, you went to heaven, and there, there you spend eternity, and you're, you're there, and, I, you know, and that always raised questions about, well, what are we going to do up there? And, and uh, I mean, how many verses of just as I am can I sing? Uh, <laughs> but it, there's so much more to it. The kingdom of God dwelling on earth. And there's going to be fruit from the tree of life. There's going to be water from the water of life. I've got up. I don't. Why did I go there? Um, James says, "Be patient until the Lord returns." For our final passage, turn to Second Thessalonians one six. What happens at the coming of the Lord? Because that's when it says, "I've got to be patient until then." So I have to be patient until the, the return of the Lord. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation had a vision in Revelation 6. He had a, he had a vision of an altar in heaven. And he said, I saw underneath that altar the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And those souls cried out to the Lord. Here's what they cried out. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 2 Thessalonians 1.6 For it is all, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be patient until the Lord returns. And at that point, we will have relief. It's not a very pretty picture, but this is the picture of what is true. 
God will, appay, will repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now when I think about that, and I, you think about the kind of persecution we get, and people make fun of you or this or that, it doesn't, really, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. I mean, do I really want to afflict? Uh, do I want them to be afflicted? But think about the person whose children were kidnapped because of their faith in Christ. Or maybe those who were beheaded. Or your husband is taken away and beaten and put in prison for the rest of his life. And you want revenge for that. You want justice that, you want justice to occur. When the Lord returns, it is only just, it says, for God to repay. But vengeance is his. He's the judge. One more verse, and I'm just going to quote it. It's 1 Peter 5, 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's another thing that's going to happen at the return of the Lord. Our faith, which has been tested by fire, is going to bring to the Lord at his return praise and glory and honor. So we're called to be patient as our faith is being tested because at the end that faith is going to bring Jesus Christ glory. And without going into it, saving it for another time, the Lord says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. When the Lord comes, we will be relieved of our suffering. He will justly avenge those who have afflicted his church. And he is coming with rewards for the saints based on their faithfulness to his word. And we'll all be a part of that. Be, faith, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Can you do it? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I didn't meet this. There's another command in this passage I didn't even look at. Strengthen your hearts. Because the Lord is near. We can do it. And just remember... These momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Our lives, for all eternity, as they are now, are created to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith, though tested by fire, will give him that glory at the revelation of his return. To Christ be all the glory. Amen. Father God, it is 
we just need, Lord, we need your wisdom. Sometimes, Father, we try to defend ourselves and we just sometimes make things worse. Father, what we need is a strong faith that we might have patience to endure the hardship that comes because of the name of Christ. Father, help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, not to be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ, it's the name which is above every other name. Father, the world doesn't want to hear that name. They don't want us to speak about it. Lord, give us the strength to be like your apostles who said we must obey God rather than men. Lord, would you give us a bold spirit along with a loving heart that we can speak the truth of your salvation into the lives of people and back it up by acts and attitudes that show our love for them and our concern. But Lord, guard us from wanting to avenge our suffering. Guard us from wanting to compromise our faith. Keep us strong. Strengthen our hearts for the sake of the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen.